Hi. Wherever you're listening to me, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. I'm Hari Arakli and today I bring you another edition of my special tech briefings. People in banking and those who track the industry are familiar with the famous quote from Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft Corp and the world's fourth richest person, that banking is necessary but banks are not. As the world moves to the cloud computing model and digital banking catches on, that seems increasingly prescient, even more so if one believes in decentralized finance. Technology has become central and strategic to banking, not just an enabler. New financial products like buy now pay later are becoming all the rage driven not just by large fintech startups like Klarna backed by deep-pocketed venture capital investors like SoftBank Group but also in India for example by Amazon, Flipkart and Paytm. Traditional banks find themselves searching for the fine balance between not losing out on the opportunity and running up a roster of consumers who may not repay their loans. The idea of open banking is also catching up with pieces of software called open application program interfaces allowing third party fintech startups for example to provide innovative financial products and services built around established banks. Last week I had a great conversation with Sanat Rao CEO of Infosys Finical on some of these topics. Infosys Finical started life in India but evolved into one of the most used banking and financial services products around the world touching a billion people and supporting 1.3 billion accounts according to the latest numbers from the company. Finical is the flagship product within Edgeverve, the products and platform subsidiary of Infosys. Sanath has 3 decades of industry experience under his belt and more recently he has also taken a deep dive into digital anthropology. I hope you like the conversation as much as I did. Sanath, uh, welcome to this podcast and uh, thank you so much for making time for this. To get us started, uh, perhaps you could uh, give us a snapshot 2 minute history of uh, Finical which of course is a uh, 20 years old uh, product and it's evolved quite a bit I guess. Uh, over to you and we'll go from there. Thank you firstly Hari for this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I'm speaking with you from London where I'm based. Uh, as you rightly said, uh, you know, Finical's been around for a while. Uh, we are the flagship software part of the Infosys group business. Uh it is it is the oldest part of the Infosys business as far as software is concerned. And of course we are dedicated to the banking industry. Our genesis itself was largely in India many years ago, but today, uh, as you might have seen from a variety of analyst reports and other industry publications, we are today one of the global leaders uh, in the spaces that we operate in. Uh, also, we started as a traditional core banking vendor, but core banking itself has undergone a lot of change in the last fifteen twenty years, and particularly in the last five years. so we've adapted to that and i'm sure during the course of this discussion we'll be talking about some of those changes uh, today of course we are known in a variety of different areas and digital and cloud is you know some of the more recent uh, uh, developments that finical has embraced and we'll discuss that um, in terms of uh, the business itself uh, we continue to be the flagship software business as far as infosys group is concerned though we don't uh, you know structurally sit within infosys we are part of infosys's Uh, bank, uh software and platforms uh, subsidiary it's called edgeverb and we are part of that uh, that organization 
Okay. Yeah, in fact, uh, since you mentioned uh, the move towards digital and cloud, uh, I, I recall seeing a press release a few months back about uh, Finical 11e, and I got the sense that uh, it was another important step towards offering more of uh, Finical's capabilities in the software as a service model. Uh, over the years, I guess uh, more and more of it must have become cloud capable. Uh, give us a sense of uh, the evolution of Finical uh, and what it has become today. I mean, in, in that context. Sure. Um, and as we know, uh, Hari, you know, one of the big areas of development in the last several years is that the cost of technology is gradually coming down. And one of the reasons for this is the industry is discovering newer ways of uh, not just building software, but indeed even deploying it. And cloud is obviously one of the very exciting recent developments. I wouldn't say recent. I mean, cloud has been around for a while, but I think the adoption of cloud within the banking industry is certainly uh, picking up substantially in the last, uh, you know, uh, couple of years. Um, as far as cloud itself is concerned, uh, and Finical's journey towards that, we started the journey a couple of years ago, and it's been a step-by-step -step process. Um, even in terms of the um, availability and the readiness of the banking uh, customers itself, you know, um, there was a time not too long ago, maybe three, four years ago, where a lot of banks were circumspect about whether to move on to the cloud and if so, how to move on to the cloud. Uh, I can confidently say on the basis of the many, many discussions that I have with CXOs of uh, small, medium and large banks in virtually every part of the world, that that's no longer a question. It's no longer a question in their minds about should they move to the cloud. I think the question more is in terms of what's the right kind of a journey that a bank has to take. And there we acknowledge that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It is an approach that's going to be determined by a variety of factors, and the banks need to determine the path that's um, most suitable for them. I think from our part, um, as a leading solution provider, our focus has been to ensure that we do a couple of things. One is that you know we are ready on the cloud and we need to be um, compatible and available on a variety of the cloud platforms. And to, to that extent, we've got partnerships with many of the leading cloud providers, whether it's AWS, IBM, uh, uh, Google, um, uh, Microsoft Azure. So we've got, you know, uh, the right uh, the right engagements with all of these uh, cloud providers. Um, also, from our own point of view, in terms of the way the solution gets deployed on the cloud, uh, you know, uh, if you go back to core banking, say 10, 15 years ago, the model in those days used to be to deploy the whole solution end to end. Uh, times have obviously changed and the compulsions of large technology programs have substantially changed in recent times. And today banks want to have the liberty and the choice to be able to deploy what they want, when they want, and in the manner that they choose to deploy. So from that point of view, architecturally also we've done a lot to ensure that each of our modules is componentized, that we give the banks the choice to be able to deploy what they want um, in a manner that they can uh, you know, pick and choose. So they're not reliant on the erstwhile model of 10, 15 years ago where solution providers used to say that you have to deploy the whole thing. Today, it's completely piecemeal. Uh, and that obviously gives a lot of flexibility and choice to the banks. Um, one final point I'd mention is that uh, as far as cloud itself is concerned, I think today in the industry, there are a variety of models that are available. Uh, many institutions obviously prefer a private cloud model. Um, uh, there is more and more focus, emerging focus on 
for public cloud and indeed on a hybrid cloud model. And I think it's a recognition of the fact that not everything may necessarily reside on a public cloud and therefore the banks want to have the choice of a hybrid cloud, so to speak. Uh, and last but not least, you know, you mentioned in your question, Hari, about uh, software as a service. So SaaS itself, I think, has undergone um, uh, a fair amount of change. And Finical has been, um, you know, one of the leaders in terms of uh, uh, moving to a SaaS uh, model, so to speak. So we launched our SaaS platform in Australia uh, um, a few years ago. Uh, and today we're doing a lot of uh, SaaS type of business in other identified geographies with identified customers. And, you know, we'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, just to uh, dwell a little bit more on the context and the background, uh, give us a sense of uh, the scale of operations of Finical. I mean, I understand it touches a billion people and 1.3 billion accounts. That's right. So we operate, so there are obviously multiple metrics. Uh, we operate in well over 100 countries across all the six continents. So we are truly global in that respect. Uh, like I mentioned in my opening comments, our genesis was really, um, um, you know, for the banks in India. Uh, and that was a long time ago. But today we are truly a global player from the West Coast of the US all the way to Australia, New Zealand and many countries in between. Uh, in terms of customers and accounts, you're absolutely right. I think... Um, we put out a statistic not too long ago that I think 17 or 18 percent of the global adult population uh, has an account that resides on Finical somewhere or the other. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a very very sizable portfolio, probably the largest such portfolio if you measure it on that metric. Um, and um, as I mentioned in my opening comments, you know we deal with uh, large global banks. We deal with um, uh, uh, regional banks and we deal, deal with local banks. So I think that's given us the the uh, the capability to be able to spread our network broad and wide, uh, and to be make you know to make Finical available to a lot of different customers. Mm. And uh, recently, uh, I mean, in terms of uh, you know news, uh, you've announced a partnership with IBM uh, to make Finical available on the Red Hat OpenShift platform and IBM Cloud for financial services. Uh, explain to us a little bit. Uh, what this means and why it is significant. Sure. So, yes, we, we've made a recent announcement and that's obviously been another step in the right direction and we're very excited by uh, that announcement. Um, IBM, as, you've, as you're probably aware, has made a, a public cloud available for financial services that they launched in the US and then in Europe. And we were one of the early partners uh, for IBM on their uh, public cloud for, for the banking community. Uh, we had a, a very strong partnership with Red Hat OpenShift even before uh, they merged with IBM. Uh, so that that, if anything, has provided a further impetus towards the the uh, you know the joint traction that we're seeing in the market. Um, I think in terms of what this means, uh, you know, given the scale and the depth that both Red Hat and IBM bring to the table, uh, and Finical's own. Um, you know, expertise in the space that we operate in. I think we're looking at ensuring that customers get multiple benefits. First and foremost, of course, is a very significant reduction in the total infrastructure readiness timeline, resulting obviously in a uh, hopefully a shorter time frame for onboarding customers and eventually taking them live. Um, the second element I'd point to is a easier and a more consistent application deployment platform you know, that helps to speed up customer onboarding. And 
you know, I go back to a comment that I made uh, in response to your previous question, which is that deployment models are consistently undergoing a change. And that's been one of the factors that's leading to, uh, you know, uh, uh, reduced timelines and ultimately reduced costs as well. So I think that's been another area where, where uh, uh, we see, you know, us being able to offer a variety of benefits uh, in working with uh, Red Hat, OpenShift and IBM. And the last point, while there are obviously other benefits, the last point I'd add is that, you know, banks are looking to, you know, leverage an elastic infrastructure. You know, they don't want to make an upfront commitment to a sizable amount of infrastructure. They want that infrastructure to expand and grow as the business for the bank grows. So banks can leverage an elastic infrastructure of the cloud deployment uh, as they deploy, you know, modules from Finical to scale on an on-demand basis. Therefore, they're not sort of upfront committing costs and they're not sort of locking up their budgets. Uh, and they're able to therefore, you know, scale up based on growth and, you know, in a more efficient manner. So these are some of the benefits that we're going to see in the, in the working with IBM and Red Hat. I might also add here that, you know, Finical's relationship with IBM has been around for many, many years. Um, while the recent announcement, of course, is on um, you know IBM Cloud and the Red Hat OpenShift part of the business, Fenical and IBM have been very close partners for many years. Um, on the software side, we use a lot of their software. Um, we you know obviously have worked with them on the services side, and now in areas like cloud and uh, uh, you know other emerging technologies. So it's it's a very important partnership, and this recent announcement is certainly a big step in hopefully the right direction for us, and we are excited by that. Mm. In the uh, bigger picture backdrop of uh, an accelerated shift to the cloud, even for the banking industry, which has you know, always been traditionally uh, more circumspect uh, about uh, big changes in tech, uh, maybe you could delve a little bit more into a couple of the specifics of the points that you mentioned in terms of benefits. I mean, just to illustrate how this combination, or whether it's with IBM or with other cloud uh, partners, uh, you know, just to give us a layman's sense of how it will make uh, things better for the banks. Maybe does it make it, their operations more secure, for example, or uh, for the end consumers, does it make their services uh, faster, better, cheaper? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there are obviously multiple benefits and not necessarily that each benefit manifests itself in equal measure with every bank. So there may be some banks who derive greater value from a certain benefit and there may be someone else who derives it from another benefit. But if I were to sort of normalize this, I'd say there are a few things. First and foremost, uh, banks are in the business of banking, right? And I think there is a genuine belief today that as many industries, including the banking industry, gets more and more competitive, banks want to focus on their core competence, which is banking. Uh, having said that, they obviously want to have the ability to leverage technology in a manner which allows them to respond to the demands of the marketplace in, in a manner that makes them, you know, agile uh, and very, very responsive to customer needs. So from that point of view, I think the cloud model allows them to uh, do a few things. One is that it allows them to, I think, take away some of the earlier burden that they used to have of doing everything on their own. And they can now rely on uh, large cloud, uh, you know, infrastructure providers like the ones that we've just mentioned, and indeed solution providers like Finical and many others, so that the onus of ensuring that the infrastructure that is available and that needs to sort of, uh, uh, you know, scale up and scale up as the demand grows 
that onus really shifts onto uh, another party rather than the bank taking its own responsibility. I think that's point number one. Point number two, as I mentioned, is the cost dimensions. Um, you know, in the erstwhile model, the the bank would have had to you know make an up- upfront uh, you know commitment of their own capital expenditure to develop the kind of infrastructure, and then gradually they would grow. Today, with the on-demand capability, um, obviously they can you know uh, convert more of their capex into opex kind of a uh, model as they as they plan the plan the scaling and the growth of their own business, and that allows them therefore the much greater financial flexibility to be able to uh, cater to their needs while still, on the other hand, leveraging the best of what infrastructure is available in the market. Last but not the least, I think in terms of, uh, you know, I, m- I mentioned in response to one of your earlier comments about the fact that as we get into a model where there's a lot more componentization, banks have the flexibility to be able to make changes <clears throat> as per what they, you know, need. I think today with cloud and all the other developments that have happened uh, around deployment in recent times, banks are therefore able to uh, look at a manner whereby they can upgrade and they can move forward in identified areas of business. So, you know, it's not as though they have to do everything at one time. It's not as though they have to upgrade the whole infrastructure at one time. Uh, They might choose to identify, uh, you know, certain parts of their business where they want to upgrade and, you know, they want to move to a newer version or move to a more recent uh, version. So all of that can be done. And obviously cloud supports that, um, uh, you know, uh, tremendously. And from Finical's point of view, we've recognized that there is an onus on us as the solution provider to be able to ensure that the technology and architecture on which Finical resides, that is completely compliant and suitable for uh, the benefits that I've just mentioned. So, We've invested a lot of time and effort um, of our own, um, Hari, to ensure that Finical is, you know, uh, at its cutting edge in terms of being cloud compatible, cloud native technologies. And like I said, you know, residing on multiple cloud infrastructures, uh, including the three or four, you know, global players that we talked about earlier today. Uh, Give us a a sense of uh, uh, how this combination of uh, banking and technology is making banking itself evolve, the ways in which, what are some of the biggest uh, trends? I mean, even in countries like India, now it's pretty common that people just don't go to their branches anymore, do everything on their smartphones and so on. That's the tech aspect. But uh, you're in a position to also give us, take a step back and tell us about how banking itself is changing. Sure, sure. And that's, you know, that's probably one question where we could spend a few hours talking only about this question. it's 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 a question that's very relevant. Uh, it's also, I think, um, uh, you know, appropriate to sort of deal with this question, given that uh, we are uh, still in the midst of a pandemic. Even though, hopefully, in most countries we've seen the worst of it, and now many economies, including India and many others, are you know beginning to come out of that and looking to a more optimistic period. The truth is that COVID is still around us, and we need to you know be watchful of that. Uh, so let me answer that question, Hari, in two parts. I think first and foremost, we must acknowledge that given that when COVID hit the world, it was something that was completely unexpected. I have to say that the banking industry, I think, responded remarkably well. Uh, mind you, a lot of people, all of us, in fact, I'd say we were very, very circumspect. Uh, and, you know, if this question had been asked of any of us 24 months ago, uh, 
about whether we'd be able to adapt to the kind of world that we've adapted in the last 12-18 months, most of us would have said no. But I think the banking industry has played its big part in terms of helping the communities, helping the economies move to this new model. I think that's certainly been helped. Uh, and the reason I point this out up front is that, mind you, uh, the economic environment has not necessarily been easy for the banks. You know, revenues have remained squeezed with low interest rates, and that's been the case in most parts of the world. Uh, loan growth has been fairly sluggish. Uh, of course, now with economies coming out of the pandemic, and you know, many governments are putting a lot of onus on trying to find ways and means to get consumer spending to increase. Um, uh, you know, and that will be good for the economy. Uh, the banks will have a big role to play there. So I think it has to be acknowledged that in the midst of the pandem pandemic, the banking industry has played a remarkably good role um, in helping the communities and the economies uh, to deal with what was completely unexpected for the whole world. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, going forward, uh, if you we were to go on the premise that we've seen the worst of the pandemic, even though we are not yet out of the pandemic, I think there'll be a few um, trends that we will see, uh, you know, going into 2022 and beyond. Uh, let me just touch on a few of them. I think first and foremost, given that the world surprise, discovered surprisingly to our, you know, pleasant surprise that we can actually do everything remote as we've seen in the last 18 months, I think we'll find that banks and indeed many other industries will completely shift gears and ramp up their spending on technology particularly, but fintech in a, in a, in a related sense. And we'll talk about fintechs in a moment. So I think the whole uh, you know, focus on increased technology spend, the fight for appropriate talent to ensure that you know, banks are able to do that, and to get, believe that the uh, digital journeys that many of these banks that had started, and they'd started this even before COVID, that these will sort of go to hopefully a slight, very, very different scale. Uh, you know, we'd done a survey uh, before COVID and that time uh, we'd done the survey with an institution here in Europe and it was a global survey. And we had found that from that survey that barely 7% of global institutions had deployed digital transformation at scale. Uh, I think in most recent time, that's, that figure has certainly grown up. And I'd say that, you know, going forward, that's only going to increase given the given the confidence about working in a very digital mode as we've seen in the last 18 months but also given that there's competition coming from all sides and last but not the least you know all of us people like you and me our expectations out of working in a digital world have completely changed in the last 18 months many things that we would have been you know uh, skeptic you know we would have been very skeptical about 24 months ago uh, last 18 months have shown that you know we, it can be actually done in a very different way so the first point I'd, I'd say, therefore, is that, you know, a lot of banks will increase their technology spend. And I think this is good for the community as a whole, because as we know today, technology is going to drive pretty much everything that the banks will do, uh, uh, you know, going forward. Uh, the second part is that, uh, you know, as far as, uh, uh, you know, we, as, we, as we record this, Hari, um, the, the uh, COP26 conference in Glasgow is still very much on, even though the politicians have left, a lot of other discussions are still going on there. And I think it's worthwhile to acknowledge the fact that uh, the attention towards uh, ESG-related matters, the attention towards uh, you know, a more sustainable and a more responsible way of living, uh, today it has indeed become a 
it's become something that's become top of mind for everyone. While there's still a lot of work to be done, um, uh, you know, I think the attention of the world is, you know, very focused on this issue. So towards that, I do believe that, you know, going forward into, you know, 2022 and beyond, banks and uh, industries that bank support will focus on, you know, sustainable product launches. They will focus on green loans and mortgages. They will focus on green and social bonds. Uh, they will focus on the kind of, you know, industries and companies that they lend their money to. And I think there'll be a lot of focus on ensuring that they are re- seen to be responsible citizens in the world. And, uh, you know, this is not to say that they'll compromise profits, but I think they will prove that doing well and doing good can actually be two sides of the same coin. So I think sustainability will see a lot of attention. And certainly the banks have a very big role to uh, play there. The other point I'd mention, you know, there are obviously many, many different uh, trends that we can talk about. But the other point I'd mention, Hari, is going back to something that we alluded to, I think, in response to your first question in this discussion. Uh, You know, as cloud and cloud-related technologies and models become more mature, I think we're really going to see a spurt going forward in the as-a-service business model. Um, you know, we are, we are familiar with the as-a-service model for many of our day-to-day activities, uh, but as-a-service business models will become a lot more prominent um, within the banking industry. And um, I think our belief is that, you know, on average, at least one in four banks will explore delivering select capabilities as a service to capitalize on a variety of industry uh, changes that have happened, whether it's open banking that has you know really taken off in many parts of the world, uh, though in a slightly different avatar in different parts of the world, um, and uh, what is increasingly being seen more recently, uh, which is embedded finance. Right? So the financial aspect of a transaction getting embedded into a larger transaction, which is not banking related, so embedded finance will obviously become very, very uh, common there. And I think all of this will lead to a big spurt in the as-a-service business model. I'll just end with one other um, uh, element here. And we're seeing a lot of this more in Asia than, let's say, in the Western world, which is the focus towards, um, you know, lifestyle apps, um, uh, sorry, banking-led lifestyle apps. Uh, you know, we've seen examples in Asia, um, um, in Southeast Asia, really, to start with. Uh, and, you know, uh, this is really going back to the point I mentioned just now, which is that leveraging the need to have embedded finance um, and, the, you know, the focus on op- not just open banking, but open finance. Uh, I think banks will wake up to the fact that technology will support this kind of a business model. Uh, and therefore, there'll be a lot of focus towards, I think, the lifestyle apps kind of a uh, uh, you know, proposition where uh, fin- the financial element of a transaction is embedded into a lifestyle um, transaction that you and I as individuals will do. And we've seen many examples in India itself, you know, Paytm is talking about it in Southeast Asia, Singapore, uh, you know, Indonesia, and China. There are many other examples that we've seen coming out of those markets. So I think we'll see these lifestyle, bank-led lifestyle apps, uh, you know, uh, growing in proliferation uh, going forward. There are, of course, other, uh, you know, uh, trends, you know, whether it's um, uh, central bank digital currencies, the whole thing around crypto, uh, a whole host of others. But let me just pause with the three or four that I just mentioned, which I think will be the main ones. Hmm. Yeah, I guess good time to ask you. You've written about uh, this concept of open banking and open finance uh, yourself uh, recently. And I was going to, uh, since you mentioned embedded finance, I was also going to ask you, 
about the rise of uh, the companies like uh, Klarna. Uh, so maybe you can think a lot a little bit and tell us a bit about what uh, uh, the significance of open banking is. I mean, first of all, in layman's terms, what does it mean and what's its significance? And uh, what is the role that you see for companies like Infosys in enabling some of these things? Uh, sure, great question. I think uh, there are different dimensions to that question. So when you when you talk about Klarna, Klarna, of course, is arguably the most well-known example of a phenomenon which is receiving a lot of attention recently, which is the buy now, pay later uh, concept. And this has obviously become very relevant now, given that e-commerce and virtually all shopping and purchasing that's happening right now is being done through the digital medium rather than going to a shop and paying for it. Right. So I think those kind of, uh, uh, you know, while buy now, pay later has been around for a long time and the, the, the functionality itself is not new. Uh, as they say, you know, every idea has its moment in time and buy now, pay later really seems to be thriving in the, in the backdrop of, uh, you know, a completely changed, um, uh, uh, shopping environment, if you like, of purchasing environment, if you like, or commerce, you know, commerce has undergone a big change in the last 18 months because of COVID and by now pay later has really thrived out of that. Uh, going to your larger question about open banking, I think, you know, while open banking itself has undergone slightly different avatars in different parts of the world, uh, simplistically speaking, what it does is a couple of things. One is that it creates a choice for customers to go beyond just their traditional banking providers and to be able to leverage other relationships in the ecosystem to be able to tap into banking type of opportunities. Uh, so in the you know erstwhile model, they had to rely only on a bank to provide them banking kind of services. Today, that option is there to go beyond an institution which is not, just, which is not registered as a bank to be able to leverage some of those capabilities. Uh, and we've seen, you know, in, in every part of the world, including in India, Hari, you know, a lot of fintechs have propped up, each of whom has a banking type of a proposition, even though in their individual right, they are not registered and they're not a bank. Um, what we do as far as emphasis is concerned, um, you know, you asked that question about what are we doing in Finical. Um, to us, this is a very exciting development because today, uh, for you and me as an end customer, uh, what we really want is that if we if we go to a bank, for example, the bank doesn't have the capability to meet our requirements end to end, then they would like uh, the bank to be able to bring a slew of these services or a slew of these solutions to us so that, you know, to us, we get an end to end proposition. Uh, as far as Finical is concerned, what we do is that we, you know, created an ecosystem in a marketplace of our own, which has allowed us to... Uh, tap into and leverage a lot of these uh, fintechs, each of who comes with a niche proposition of their own, and to work with them on the one hand and with banks on the other in the, in, in the form of a marketplace to be able to leverage the full, uh, you know, full opportunity. So, you know, we've got a couple of initiatives going on there. We've got the Finical Fintech Connect, which is our fintech partnership program through which Finical periodically selects fintechs for, you know, not just co-innovation, but also jointly to go to market. Uh, that's one thing. The second element, second thing that we've done is the Finical Fintech Council. Uh, we recognize that many of these fintechs, they are new, they are born on modern technology, they don't have the burden of uh, legacy and scale, uh, and therefore they have the ability to, you know, accelerate innovation and in some ways, you know, respond to market changes much, much more quickly. 
So we've created a Finical FinTech Council where there's an ecosystem of banks and Finical aimed at accelerating innovation through a bank and a FinTech partnership. So we are, we are recognizing that there's a role that the bank has to play. We are also recognizing the role that the FinTechs has to play. And we're bringing both of these together under the umbrella of the banking innovation platform that we've created through the FinTech Council. Uh, and this, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, this cons consists of today about 25 global banks. And these are represented by CXO. So it's represented at a, uh, you know, a senior level. Uh, and, you know, from their own point of view, while this is a forum to exchange ideas, I think it's also a great opportunity for people to get to know what other parties are doing today. Because that's where the rubber hits the road and they're able to you know, jointly set up, um, you know, propositions and make that a reality. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing that we've done specifically in this context, uh, you know, recognizing the larger role for fintech itself is, of course, creating our own dedicated marketplace which we call the Finical App Center. And that's no different from, uh, you know, the App Store that you have on the iPhone, for example. So the Finical App Center is a Finical marketplace for solutions, which are developed by the ecosystem. You know, so they're not necessarily developed by us. They're developed by an ecosystem consisting of our own partners, by other fintech startups, and indeed sometimes even by clients, uh, not all of whom may necessarily be Finical customers. So for financial institutions, this app center, you know, allows them easy access uh, to tap into, uh, you know, a larger set of innovations, which are being developed around the clinical solution. And for technology providers and startups who are residing on the marketplace, the app center, you know, provides them an opportunity to showcase their innovation because it's a nice platform, uh, given that the, you know, clinical footprint is over 100 countries and many, many, you know, banks in different parts of the world. It's a nice platform for them to be able to showcase their innovation. If I remember correctly, at the moment, the App Center has probably around 70 or 75 app listings. And that's obviously, you know, jointly growing. So to summarize uh, your question, um, uh, Hari, uh, you know, open banking has led to a completely new way of making banking kind of services available to end customers like you and me. These need not always come from a bank. They could come from third parties. The third parties could be large platforms like a Facebook or Amazon, or they could be fintechs. It allows, uh, you know, it allows the capability for all of these to be stitched together in a very efficient and a seamless manner so that customers get an end-to-end -end proposition. And I have to say that, you know, given that open banking in many ways really started here in Europe, uh, the regulators have blessed this because I think the regulators want to see more competition for banks. They want to see greater, uh, you know, opportunities to be made available for the end customers. They want customers to have a choice, which they didn't necessarily have five, 10 years ago. Uh, so all of this has been facilitated by open banking. And I think that's a great, that's a great, uh, you know, uh, development. It obviously assumes slightly different avatars in different parts of the world. So it's not necessarily that open banking has exactly the same model in every part of the world. Um, but fundamentally, as a philosophy, um, I think it's it's a wonderful uh, development. Sorry, that was a fairly long answer to what I think is a very exciting and a new development. You mentioned crypto uh, briefly. Uh, and I guess today a conversation like this uh, needs to touch on uh, cryptocurrencies. And I was just wondering, do you see Finacle being used uh, for crypto-based transactions or is it already happening? I mean, that's a specific question. And I guess in the broader sense, maybe you could also tell us about uh, your views on where you see the whole uh, crypto scene evolving. 
Um, so I'll answer the first part. I'm not able to hurry at the moment share everything um, uh, about Finical's plans there because there are some things which are under development and we've not yet announced it. So I'd just like to, you know, maybe come back to you at the right time and confirm that. All I will say is this, that, uh, you know, while while there was a lot of skepticism and concern around cryptos, particularly because they are not regulated, uh, and it was felt that it was very, very speculative and it leads to, you know, irresponsible spending and so on. Uh, you know, we had a lot of criticism of this in the last, you know, two, three, four years. Having said that, certainly, as we've seen in more recent times, uh, some of that skepticism has gone away. Uh, and there seems to be more acceptance that crypto has a role to play. There's still some way to go in the sense that I think the day crypto starts getting regulated in some manner and there's some oversight, um, uh, you know, that will, I think, provide a lot of comfort. But the fact that, uh, you know, crypto has become a reality, become more of a reality now than it was, say, 18, 24, 36 months ago, I think that's a that's a no-brainer. And you've seen, you know, we've seen announcements by leading companies um, about their own perspectives of crypto, you know, big institutions like PayPal, Visa, all of them are now facilitating, you know, transactions in crypto. Um, everyone's familiar with the announcements that Elon Musk and, uh, you know, Tesla made earlier uh, this year. So I think there's a lot more um, openness about this. And certainly I think there is much less skepticism, even though genuine concerns do reside that, you know, it needs to be regulated if indeed it has to have a very legitimate place in the market. Uh, that said, I think as a variant of that, of course, is the development around, sorry, the greater interest around central bank digital currencies. And we've seen many countries, you know, whether it's China, uh, Japan, South Korea, India, many of them have, you know, come out with their viewpoints about what kind of a role CBDC might play here in Europe and UK. UK itself has announced, uh, you know, that they will have the, uh, they're, they're making plans for a CBDC uh, as far as the UK is concerned. So I think that is becoming Again, another uh, area of interest, and we have to sort of wait and watch and see, you know, what comes out of these various announcements uh, of CBDC ecosystems. Uh, the fact that multiple companies, are sorry, multiple countries are talking about it, the fact that it's being discussed at the regulator level uh, and at the, you know, government level, I think obviously shows that it is being given the kind of attention at the highest level. So that's that's good. Uh, whether this will all translate into a completely different way of doing business, I think time, you know, we still need to sort of wait and watch there. But so personally, I think the CBDC, the attention that the world is beginning to give in CBDC and, you know, Asia has taken the lead there compared to the Western economies. I think that's certainly a very positive uh, uh, development simply because these digital currencies have the potential to transform, you know, monetary systems. Uh, of course, they could, you know, uh, if 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 you're not careful, they can also pose some kind of a threat to financial stability. Uh, but I, I I do believe that with more and more countries talking about this and more and more regulators talking about this, CBDC you know certainly has a slightly more secure position now in terms of a possible way forward than it did uh, say 24 to 26 months ago. Sanat, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, also, as we begin to wrap up, uh, whenever I get a chance to talk to someone uh, really senior in any industry, I always like to include at least one question uh, about uh, their own careers because uh, aspiring uh, executives 
listening uh, might benefit from that and and uh, your description of yourself as a digital anthropologist uh, made me curious and you know i thought that's something that we should definitely ask you about so tell us about that interest and uh, uh, and also tell us about any interesting conclusions that you have arrived at over the years uh, on human behavior and how we spend what we do with money and I- i'd imagine that's those are the kinds of things that you are fascinated by and that you've been studying over the span of your career now over 30 years uh <laughs> this is this is an area i'm very very passionate about uh, and i could talk for a very long time but i'll try and keep it uh, a little concise hari so yes um, digital anthropology is something that i've begun studying so i'm studying it you know seriously i'm actually attending classes writing exams evaluated you know i'm going back to really the classroom which i left 35 years ago uh, and this really started thanks to the pandemic and as we know you know during covid many people have used the opportunity to rediscover passions and strengths and new areas of interest which we might not have done in other times so i got to know about digital anthropology actually in january of last year um, and i committed to going back to university to study that for a two year masters once i realized that thanks to covid you know the working uh, you know the work patterns will change substantially uh, and my, my main concern was in the past before covid i used to travel globally about 20 days a month and i recognized that you know doing a demanding university program like a masters wouldn't have been easy if i was doing that kind of travel so i think i leveraged the opportunity of covid and i'm very glad i did that because i think it's allowed me a few things first and foremost you know having done a lot of technology projects myself uh, over the course of uh, the many years that i've spent with finical and ibm and the others um, you know a lot of times uh, when we see problems on the ground um, it's not always the technology that's causing a problem we often underestimate uh, the human element of what leads to problems and it's this whole relationship between human behavior on the one hand and the emerging technologies on the other which has led to um, this emerging social science called digital anthropology and as the name suggests you know digital itself has something that has sort of only in more recent times uh, begun getting more mature anthropology as you're aware studies human behavior and is, you know looks back at human behavior from the past so what the course does is it allows us to look at the perspective of uh, our way of thinking and how we relate to technologies and you know when the course started last year for me it we went back to first principles so to speak so we were taken back to the late 1700s you know uh, over 200 years ago uh, uh, when uh, you know the definition of technology was very different from the way we understand it today Uh, and that was done in the context of the slave trade as it used to happen at that time um but what was being deployed as part of that trade was what was then categorized as modern technology right now obviously we've moved a long way since then but what what this course has allowed me to do is it has allowed me to take a very um, contextual perspective of how we respond to changes in technology and how it's you know necessary for us never to take anything for granted uh, and if 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 there's one thing that i've sort of learned out of this it is that uh, you know always question and always be curious 
about um, how technologies will help and shape our our uh, our way of using these technologies so i think that's that's been one wonderful area of learning now related to that is something else which i've not highlighted in social media and the others but it's something that i'm increasingly passionate about and i've committed to that as well which is that while the digital anthropology course allowed me to take a very broad perspective and that was not industry specific or was not technology specific um I'm almost through with my anthropology course. I just have my dissertation to do. Uh, what I've now just started, I started it in September of this year, is that on the basis of the broad learning of the digital anthropology course, I've, I've got now interest to get into more detail in certain areas. And the, the one that I've picked for myself is the ethical deployment of technology, and particularly newer technologies like artificial intelligence. So I've just started a MPhil program. It's a two-year MPhil program at the University of Cambridge. So this is being done through a body called the Leverhulme Center of Future Technologies. It's 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 a joint body that's I think been uh, you know funded by Oxford, Cambridge, MIT, Imperial College, and Berkeley universities in the U.S. So. University of Cambridge was the first university to launch this MPhil program on AI ethics. So I've just committed to that, and you know, over the next two years, hopefully, I'll, I'll acquire more depth and more knowledge about that. And you know, it 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 um, it allows us to ask questions about matters which you and I, as individuals, have often not paid attention to. So you know, we all get very excited about the potential of artificial intelligence, for example. And there's no doubt that AI is going to have a very exciting role to play going forward. However, um, you know, every technology has its downside. And, and you know, uh, what's happened, I think, is that the pace at which the technology has progressed has far outstripped the pace at which institutions and the community of human beings have responded to what we need to do to ensure that those technologies get deployed responsibly. And as we know, you know, from many things that have happened in the last uh, few years, uh, in many different examples in different parts of the world, there's a lot of concern about bias, there's a lot of concern about racialism, there's a lot of concern about uh, certain uh, prejudices that come to mind in the way some of these technologies get deployed. So I'm hoping that with this perspective on AI ethics, I'll be able to leverage the breadth of experience that I've got through anthropology, but also the depth that I require in an identified space, which in my case is AI ethics, um, and, you know, leverage that. Uh, and I see that as a complement to, you know, over 30 years of industry experience. So, you know, I can hopefully bring a practical experience of being in the industry for 30 years, but back that up by these two qualifications that I'm now committing a lot of time towards. Um, and all of this is for my own personal learning. I hope, I hope as an individual, I'll, I would have evolved a lot more by the end of this. And hopefully, you know, in my work and indeed in my own lifestyle, I'll be able to contribute and make a difference. Okay, excellent. Uh, truly insightful conversation, uh, Sanat. Uh, many more questions, but I guess we'll have to end this one here. Uh, thank you so much again for making time for this. And I definitely hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you very much, Hari, for the opportunity and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. That was Sanat Rao. That's it for this briefing. You can find all our podcasts on ForbesIndia.com and on your favorite podcast apps. 
I'm Hari Arkli. Thank you for listening.